Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, thank you so much for the opportunity for us to gather today and to lift up our hearts to you in praise and adoration. We thank you, Lord, that you have brought us here. We thank you that you've gathered us together. We thank you that you are a saving God, that you have given us your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, that we might have forgiveness and life eternal. Lord, we thank you for all of these, and we thank you that you have given us your revealed truth, that we have the revelation of God's will, his way. We understand who you are through your word. And I pray today, Father, that you will cause our hearts to be inclined, as always, to respond to your word, to change what needs to be changed, to cooperate with the work of the Spirit of God in our lives, to transform us into the image of Christ. That's our great desire, to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, and thereby be usable by you and make a difference in our world. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, if you get an opportunity, you should watch the uh, replay, at least the beginning of the replay of our service. This morning, we had eight babies dedicated, uh, parents dedicating their babies to the Lord, and you'll want to see that. Clearly, not everybody's been socially distancing during this COVIDian time, so it's, it's very good. We're building the church in an, another way, so... Um, we're, we're looking today at uh, the start of section four, another uh, mini section in our series on uh, identity crisis, what it really means to be the bride of Christ. And today we're going to look at the question, what does the church do? If someone were to ask you, what, what, is, what does the church do? How would, you, how would you answer that question? Well, you know, we, we meet together, we sit and we, we sing and we listen to God's word and we have programs and we do things in the city and we do things internationally, all of that. There's a lot of criticism that has been floating around, particularly during this time, about what the church does or does not do or whether the church is essential or not essential. And in particular, some of the, uh, I think, discouraging things that I'm hearing is, is the, the misidentification of the church, the misunderstanding of what the church is and how vital the church is and what the church actually does. And so it's important for us as God's people to really have a handle on, on our identity, who we are, what the church is, and because our identity as a church filters into our identity as people, as individual believers as well. What the church does is what God's people do as well. I'm hearing a lot of criticism to say, well, the church, you know, all the church is interested in is money. The only reason the church really wants to call people back to gathering is because they just want money. Well... Gathering or not gathering has no bearing on whether or not God's people offer to the Lord their sacrifices in, in that regard. But it's very tragic and sad to hear that. And the whole idea seems to be that the, the church is some sort of leech on society when in fact uh, it's just the opposite. Some of you may be familiar with a, a study called the Halo Impact Study which was commissioned by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada in 20, 2019 actually whereby they sought to determine what does the church actually contribute to the, the, the uh, service sector of Canada? And if the church did not exist, what kind of dollars would we be looking at that, that in fact, the taxpayers would have to make up to take care of all the services that, that the church does without costing the Canadian public anything, the Canadian taxpayer anything? And it was demonstrated in that study that 
Out of the 30,000 charities in Canada, they contribute $6.8 billion every year to the service sector of the country. $6.8 billion that would have to be made up by taxpayers to accomplish the same things, to contribute the same things to, this, to the culture. There's also in that study shown that the average worshiper, the average person who attends a church, makes a contribution of about $5,739 to be exact to the actual service sector of the community just by being a worshiper and contributing. And so um, it, it was also demonstrated that Calvary Baptist Church provides about $6 million every year of service to the region of Durham by existing, simply existing, and as high as possibly $6.7 million every single year. So for those who suggest the church should be taxed, the church is a leech on society, they really have no idea. If the church were to disappear, the impact on our country would be staggering. So what does the church do? That's what we want to look at this morning. Open up your Bibles if you, you would to Acts chapter 2. We're going to get there soon, but you might as well be ready for us to be there. And um, the church, of course, is, uh, you know, to answer the question properly, we want to ask the question, you know, what does the Bible say the church does? Because that's the point of our study is to is to no longer be struggling with an identity crisis, but actually know who we are. So what, is it, what does the Bible say the church does? And what does the head of the church call his church to do? Jesus Christ. Because after all, that's, that defines what the church does and who the church is. Keep in mind that we are living in the kingdom of this world, but we are a kingdom within a kingdom, a kingdom set apart to God. Moving Christ's agenda forward, that's what we're called to do. And regardless, that's our call. In fact, it's an, it's, it's an unstoppable agenda because Jesus Christ said it is. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew 16, verse 18. So what we want to look at today is just part of what the church does for the, uh, because of the time uh, that we have. And I want to look with you this morning, particularly the church as a worshiping community. The church as a worshiping community. And, and uh, what caught my attention is a, is a psalm that uh, just I noted this week and it just blessed my heart and I just feel like I have to read it to you because as we start in this whole concept of the church as a worshiping community, Psalm 29 is just one of those psalms that leaps out at you. Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf. Syrian, or Mount Hermon, like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, glory, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. 
Isn't that an awesome psalm? Just ascribe a worship to the Lord. That's, that's, I mean, if we understand the nature of the church, really, that's who we are. We're a worshiping community. We are called out of this world by Almighty God to worship Him, to represent the presence of the living Christ in this world, and then to ascribe Him praise and worship in our lives so that everyone who sees us notes that there is a great God in this world. And so this psalm really teaches us to ascribe great praise to the Lord. So how does Calvary Baptist Church, in particular, do what the church is supposed to do? We want to narrow this down to specifics today and and measure ourselves against the Word of God and make certain that we are uh, actually following the the Scriptures as they are taught. So how does Calvary Baptist Church uh, do what the church is supposed to do? Well, our guideline is to understand the nature of the church as a guide to the essential ministry of the church. See, a church actually wouldn't be a church unless it did the very things that make a church a church, right? That's sort of common sense and common logic, but but there are certain realities that grow throughout the scriptures that really identify what is the essentials of a church. And we've looked at a lot of this already. This is somewhat review to you, but I don't take for granted that, um, that everybody's been here all the time or whatever, so let's catch up on this. Churches that cease to be visible Um, to be visibly active in the nature of the church are not really a church. So there are really five major things that, that define the nature of a church. And the first is this, truth. The church is defined, the nature of the church is truth because we worship the God of truth. And so we represent him. And by the way, that truth is not self-evident, although there are, uh, we can observe the truth of God, but it's not self-evident. It has to be taught. That's why God has given us his word. And his word is truth. The church also is an assembly. An assembly, we've learned this, that it's what it means to be church. Church is an assembly, a called out assembly of people. We are parts of a body. All of us are parts of a whole body. And, and, um, and, you know, if you know anything about assembly and parts, it's important when you're assembling something that you have all of the parts. You know, we, we've heard some good news here recently that, that the GM plant is, is going to start assembling again and everything. Well, you know, they would not even embark upon the idea of assembly if they didn't have all the parts. That would just be a complete failure of model, of business model. And so it is with the church. We are, we are parts that are gathered into this great assembly. But, but the difference between a GM assembly and us is the GM assembly uh, theoretically would be all great working parts. We have all kinds of brokenness about us. And we, we come together. And when we come together and assemble, the parts are being ministered to each other. The parts are ministering to the parts and growing one another. That's why it's so important to be together. So the church by nature is an assembly. Thirdly, the church by nature is, is a church that has allegiance to one God and one God alone. We belong to God alone. We are, we are loyal to his way and his will. We are loyal to our Savior. There are no other gods before our God. Jesus Christ says he is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to the Father but by him. Anyone who says that there's multiple gods or multiple ways to God, all that, is not by nature a church and not by nature a Christian. There's only one way to God, and that's Jesus Christ. We have 
total and sole allegiance to Jesus Christ or you're not a church. Fourthly, uh, the, the nature of the church is service. And the nature of the church is service because our Savior, the head of the church, came to serve not to be served, and called on us and threw his mantle on us to be people who serve. The halo impact study is all about the service reality and nature of the church. And so we are called to be that. And finally, we are witness. The nature of the church is to witness. We're to expand the impact of the good news throughout all the world. God, Jesus Christ said to us, go into all of the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. That's what the church does. That's the nature of the church. If you're not about that, you're not really a church. That's what the church is about, offering the good news. Jesus, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to know him. And it's our mission to go to every single person and tell them the gospel. That's what churches do. So how did we further refine the ministry model of Calvary Baptist Church? Well, we looked at the commands of Jesus. What did Jesus command? There were two major commands that he made. One's a, one's a command, one's a commission. Uh, Matthew chapter 20, 22, 37 to 39 and Matthew 28, 19, and 20, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, body, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the great commandment. And also there's a great commission, make disciples, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe whatsoever things I've commanded you. These two things form the core foundation of the nature of what the church does. So what did the primitive church do? If you're open to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, let's read here. What did the primitive church do? In light of what Jesus commissioned, what Jesus commanded, the nature of the church as we study the scriptures and understand the nature of God, what did the primitive church do? Acts 2, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, which means the assembling, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We can see here if we... If we crystallize what's going on, unpack this, we can see there's five different things going on that are totally related to the nature of the church as we discover through the scriptures in terms of the nature of God, and that is teaching, fellowship, worship, service, and evangelism. Exactly reflected by the intrinsic nature of the church. That's what a church is. That's what a church does. What Calvary Baptist Church has done is to take these models, to take this and, and make this our ministry model. We're going to slap this thing together. I, I, you may think it's slapped together. It's not slapped together. It's very deliberate, very intentional, very structured, very organized, and, and very much following a model that we have agreed to follow. And everything that we do is with respect to this model. We take the will of God from the word of God and it's shaped the way Calvary Baptist Church functions. By God's grace, we've sought to do this by taking the primitive church, by taking the commands of Jesus, putting them together and making a ministry model that is made here in Calvary but is actually made in the scriptures. In fact, there's really nothing novel, nor do I think there ought to be anything novel. God's already given us the details of who we should be, what he wants us to do, and we need to stick to that model and stick to that design. 
And so for, for us, from the two commands of Jesus, we've come up with five core essentials. This is review for many of you, but some of you have joined us along the way and don't know these things. We have five core essentials, which, which, we, which move us to three key practices from one mission to produce two outcomes. That's how this works. So let me just break it down for you real quick. Our ministry is from the great commandment to love the Lord and to love our neighbors and the great commission, obeying the great commission. We have moved to five core essentials, which corporations would call five core values, which is word, worship, growth, prayer, and witness. Growing out of the nature of the church scripturally, the commands of Jesus, the primitive church. And we've, out of that, we have developed three essential practices or three key practices that we call everybody here at Calvary to fully engage in worship, connecting with God, connecting with one another, and reaching the lost for Christ. We call on all of you. That's a balanced, well-rounded discipleship model that moves us because of the one mission that we have is to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ, who in turn as the two outcomes will love the Lord their God with all of their heart, mind, soul, body, and strength, will love their neighbors as themselves, and will make disciples, which is the call of Jesus, those are the outcomes. That's what we call to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And these fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, our vision is that every contact of every believer from Calvary will, uh, will uh, be an encounter of Jesus Christ and the good news to every contact you have. That's how we see this model moving out into our world. Uh, next week, I want to show you a little bit about our discipleship pathway. And so this week, we're only going to look at the one key practice, and that's the key practice of worship. Next week, Lord willing, just because I don't want to rush this with you, next week, Lord willing, we'll look at connect and reach. But for this week, we're going to look just at that key, uh, the key practice of worship here at Calvary Baptist Church and the ministry of corporate worship as we understand it from the scriptures. The scriptures teach us that a church is to be a worshiping church. You're, by nature, we are a worshiping people. That's who we are. And uh, so I want to look at four elements with you today. Actually, I want to only look in detail at three and save the fourth for another time to break out a little bit uh, more detail. The first is this. The first element in what it means to be a worshiping church is to glorify God by feeding the flock. To glorify God by feeding the flock. Notice verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What does it mean to be a church? It means devoting yourself to the apostles' teaching. It means sound doctrine. It means making sure that the teachings that the church is engaged in are found in the scriptures, taught to us and handed down to us, entrusted to us by the scriptures. We are not here to tickle itching ears, what people want to necessarily hear, but rather what does God want us to hear? What has God said to us? Sound doctrine means healthy versus substandard versus something that will be infectious or false. This is sound doctrine. Timothy, uh, Paul writing to Timothy has a lot to say about this. In fact, why don't you just look over for a moment at what, what kinds of things Paul wrote to Timothy in respect to this, in, in 1 Timothy 3, uh, verse 15, he reminds Timothy, who's a young pastor, that the church is God's household 
It's the household of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. He writes in verse 13 of chapter 4, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect that. And and then over in um, 2 Timothy 4, and, and one to five, you know, you've got him teaching Timothy, preach the word, verse two, be prepared in season. Verse three, for a time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers who say what their itching ears want to hear. There are grave dangers among us of those who do not teach sound doctrine. Now, the apostles' teaching, by the way, is the full counsel of God. Because the apostles taught from the Old Testament and handed down to us as well the teachings of the New Testament. So the whole counsel of God is the reference here of what they were devoting themselves to in terms of the teaching. And, and James Boyce in his commentary says that, that, it, that um, from Acts 2.42 we learn that, that the reality of church is it's a learning, studying church. In fact, the word disciple itself means learner. So when Jesus said, go make disciples, he was literally saying, go make learners of me, about me. Go make learners of me. Be taught to obey. In John 14, 6, we learn that Jesus is the truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. The church, as we said, is the pillar and foundation of truth. How long do we continue to preach the apostles' uh, teaching? Until Christ returns, 1 Timothy 4, 13. And in fact, the teaching in the church is, is multi-gender, multi-generational. In Titus 2, 3 to 5, older women are to teach younger women. The, all those who are gifted to teach, all in the church, regardless of gender, are to be engaged in devotion to the apostles' teaching and teaching one another. That's what the church is. And for the most part, it should be expositionally so that we, in fact, grow and learn to grow from the scriptures. What does expositional mean? It simply means the word expositional means to expose the text to the people. Take the text, what it says, what it means, what it meant, what it means, expose it to the people. That's what it means. Not ideas, not suppositions, not uh, creative theories and all of this. Just tell me what the text means, Pastor. That's the rule. And, um, and of course, as in, in, in uh, Boyce, James Boyce writes in his commentary in Acts, a spirit-filled church is always going to be a Bible-studying church. And church and, and teaching of scriptures is central. That's why you find that the teaching in Uh, Reformation churches in particular, like ours, have teaching from the center of the church, not on the wings of the church. In uh, churches like ours, there are central details, central visuals to send a message that the Word of God is central to the essence and nature of the church. You'll also see behind me that the tank is central as well, the baptistry. And when in communion, the communion table is central as well. Tank, table, and teaching are central in a Baptist church. Because that's the Bible, that's who we are in scriptures. Now, what are the obstacles to our teaching? Well, of course, you know, our our generation is always questioning authority. 
And so it puts at risk the willingness to respond to the word of God. You know our culture is all about relativism, your truth, my truth, everybody's truth. It's almost like a song, I'm not sure. But, you know, and, and of course there's truth and there's truth. That's all there is. And then there's my experience, your experience. What's the truth? There's lies, there's counterfeits. We are commanded, by the way, brothers and sisters, to walk in the truth. It's not something you take for granted or say, well, maybe if I get around to it, I'll, I'll be interested in the truth. No, we're actually commanded to, to walk in the truth. Second John verse 6 tells us that, that the truth actually abides in those who truly belong to Christ. And it says in that very verse there in 2 John verse 6, this is love, that we walk in his commandments. Wow. That defines something for us, doesn't it? And, and I would submit to you that, that this word devoted, they devoted themselves, was, was um, um, uh, evidence that Christ was really real to them. Because they hungered for the word of God. They hungered for the teachings of Christ. They hungered for the bread of life. If you know the Lord, you're hungry. You, you want to hear. You want to read your Bible. You want to, you know, you say, well, the Bible's boring or church is boring. Listen, if you think Bible, the Bible's boring or church is boring, particularly this church, uh, you, you, you know, you need to examine your own heart. You need to examine your heart because because um, if you truly know the Lord, you're hungry, you're thirsty for the things of God. You take it seriously as if your life depends upon it, because it does. It is through the confession of faith in the word of God, the good news of God that's taught to us, that we come to know Christ at all, that we actually are saved. And here's the thing, you know, um, that the greatest danger, I think, at the moment isn't really... Uh, outside of us. It isn't really the secular. That's, that's not really our greatest danger. The greatest danger in the church of Jesus Christ right now is among us. I'm not saying in our church particularly, but in the church of Jesus Christ, the greatest danger there. We live in a, a, a moment in time where there are many deceivers, many progressives, many revisionists. And I'm going I'm to say more about that again in a future, future sermon. But but who are changing the meaning of the gospel, who are re rejecting the ancient paths, and who are seeking to revise the commands of Jesus Christ and the decrees of God to be more compatible with the culture that we live in. And these are grave, grave dangers to us. These are what I would call anti-Christians who are among us. Be alert, be very alert. Not everybody who says they're handling the word of God is handling it honestly or truthfully or expositionally. Secondly, notice what they were doing in verse 47. Praising God. Praising God. That's what a worshiping community is all about. That's what a church is all about. We praise God. We praise God for who he is and what he has done. We praise him in the Psalms. We praise him with sacrifices of praise. That's, that's what the scriptures teach us. A, a lifestyle devoted to our, the living God that our lives have replaced the sacrifice of animals. We are a living sacrifice. And the word worship, praising God, worshiping God is, is to express his worthship to everyone, declaring the pra praises of our saving God. How do we actually measure uh, what is right? Because 
In fact, most of what we would consider praising God would be uh, our singing to God, our, our, our songs. Uh, there's, of course, other ways to praise Him, but, but much of our praise would be, would be how we sing. Uh, how, how can we determine what is the right focus and what is the right target and what is the right content of our singing, of our music? What is the right intention of our music so that it actually glorifies and praises God? Well, I think the scriptures, of course, teach us in John 4, 24, for instance, that we must worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, led by the Holy Spirit and core in truth. In 1 Corinthians 14, 26, our, our, um, our praise is to edify the church. It's to build up the church. And so um, I, I've got five words here that I think help us to understand uh, what is the um, what is the Holy Spirit's ministry through us in our praise, in our singing? We sh- it should be, the content should be triune God-centered. It should be Christ-focused. It should be Spirit-empowered. It should be truth-sourced. And it should be church-building. Those five parameters shape or form what is really legitimate praise to God. It covers exaltation and edification, mostly, because mostly what we're doing is believers coming together and exalting our God together and building one another up as we do so, as the Spirit of God builds us up through what we're doing. And, um, and sometimes it makes an impression on those who don't know Jesus Christ. In fact, look at 1 Corinthians 14, because I think this is really cool. Um, there's a warning and then there's also instruction, uh, but, you know, Paul, Paul writing to the Corinthians says, so, verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 14, so if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and some of you who do not understand uh, or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying or, in fact, teaching God's word, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Now, this this is the role and responsibility of a praising, worshiping church to exalt the greatness of God, to see the saints build up. But in fact, if someone should wander in here and does not know our Jesus, they will be able to say with great confidence, surely God is really among you. And I have heard people testify to that about Calvary Baptist Church who have come in here, particularly during our singing, and said, there was, I, don't, I don't know how to explain, but there's something going on here I didn't understand, something I'd never experienced before, something that was truly, truly out of this world spectacular. And that's what it ought to be. And when you come here, you make a contribution to that. You should come with a full heart, wanting to, and and, and making certain that you are making a contribution because you are personally, as we meet in corporation, personally exalting God, strengthening your brothers and sisters in Christ, and possibly helping someone who doesn't know Jesus to meet him right here, right now, right today or online as they encounter him. So uh, what, does, what does anything go with the Lord? I mean, does, and by the way, I think it's an important sidebar in, uh, interest, it will be of interest to you, is that Baptists were the first to contribute hymn singing to the Reformational Church. 
Yay us. How about that? It was a guy by the name of Benjamin Keach, 1691, who brought him singing into the Reformational Church, and uh, the rest is history. So thank you, Benjamin, and uh, we'll catch up with him someday in heaven. So does anything go? You know, is, 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 does God care what we do? Well, we know that God is, is very much um, a, a God of detail. And so down through the ages, of course, there's been... Um, debate in terms of structuring worship services and all of that, whether it's regulative or normative and uh, in constructing corporate worship. And, and simply to say this, that, it, that those who've debated down through the ages in terms of, of, of modeling a regulative uh, church service, uh, um, plan the service to be only what scripture explicitly endorses. Those in the normative side uh, have structured gatherings and assemblies and church service on the basis of whatever isn't prohibited is therefore permitted. And so, um, our, you know, our kind of our Magna Carta, the Second London Confession, 1689, put forth this statement. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the holy scriptures. So growing from that, of course, the elements that generally have grown from that regulative style of planning church services would include preaching and teaching, prayer, baptism, communion, an offering, testimony, and singing. As Jay Marcelino has pointed out in his article, Leading the Church in God-Centered Worship. You know, and we, we have attached some things to the church service I, that, that um, uh, I believe bring honor to God. Um, you know, like early this morning, baby dedications. We have some special day services and things of that nature that um, uh, were not necessarily demonstrated in the primitive church. Keep in mind, it says in the text that every day, verse 46, every day they continue to meet together in temple courts, and they broke bread in, in their homes. They, they met formally together, and they met informally together. It's really exciting to, to study the, the, the beginning stages of this, uh, what it meant for the early church to praise God, because, um, you know... When they, were in the, uh, when they were in the upper room, of course, and, and this event had taken place and what was going on, it tells us in verse 41 that, that about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Well, we know that, that when, they, when the Spirit of God came upon them at, at the, the Pentecost, when the church was formed, that they were in a, at a room together, there was about 120 of them. So how did 3,000 people come to know the Lord on that day? It seems like they moved this praise party that they were having when they received the Holy Spirit, it seems like they moved it out to the temple, says the temple courts. They moved it uh, likely to the court of the Gentiles. And in and, and studying um, the architecture of the, of the court at the time, the court of the Gentiles on a celebration time, and by the way, this is a celebration of the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost. So there'd be great numbers of people there to celebrate. The court of the Gentiles, it, it is said, could hold 200,000 people at a time in the court. Can you imagine? Not a lot of social distancing going on there at that particular moment. 200,000 people there. So here's what they did. They took, they obviously, when they received the Spirit of God, they were told to wait, they received the Spirit of God, and they took from the room, they went out, and Peter started preaching a message. And 
bypassers were coming by and they were listening to this great message of being redeemed by Jesus Christ, being rescued by the the blood of Christ and forgiven of their sins and eternal life. And it says 3,000 people were added that day. It tells us that priests and Levites were coming to know Jesus on their way into the temple. It's it's a phenomenal thing that was going on and taking place. And they were praising God for this. And of course, there's always been debates as what style is acceptable to God. And we've been debating this for like as long as I've been ministering. You know, how culturally comparative are we allowed to be and how relevant are we allowed to be? You know, after all, we know that the medium matters because the medium has a lot to do with the impact of the message. You know, what's the costuming? How are we supposed to dress in formal corporate gathering or, or, or whatever? We've been debating that and arguing that, tie, no tie. Dress, slacks, jeans, what is, what is okay with God? Music, what, what's okay with God in terms of music? Not, not, not the content necessarily, but all, even the style. The added elements that we've got, technology, liturgy versus a very loose gathering. All of these have been debated. Philippians 4.8 is helpful to us. You know, whatever is right, true, admirable, those kind of things. Does style move people? You know, you have to ask questions. Ed Stetzer and Elmer Towns from their book, Perimeters of Light, you know, they ask questions like, does the style move people toward reverence for God or distract or deflect from his glory? And what associations or memories or emotions or understandings are evoked by your worship? All of these things are things we think about because we need to be conscious of the fact that there's an onlooker assessment. And participants who are, and so, so finally, let me just uh, wrap it up today with um, the third in this major, uh, major categories of worship. As I said, the fourth we'll do with a couple weeks from now. But notice what they did as well in verse forty-two, and they devoted themselves to prayer. Now you know this is really cool because if you turn back a page in your Bibles to Acts chapter one, it, it you know Jesus has. Um, ascended, he's about to ascend into heaven in verse um, 8, and he tells them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And, and, then, and then it says, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently upon, uh, up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white i.e. angels, stood beside them, men of Galilee. They said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go. And it says this, then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk. The reason he puts that detail in there, because Luke is very detailed, is a Sabbath day walk would be about three quarters of a mile. You couldn't walk more than three quarters of a mile. You'd be abusing the privileges of the Sabbath. So they left the Mount of Olives and only walked about three quarters of a mile. So that gives us a bit of a perimeter in Jerusalem as to where the gathering of the upper room was. And so it, that detail tells us somewhat where they were. And it says, of course, the disciples were there present. It's, you know, here it says Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Peter, John, James, you know, Matthew, Alphaeus, um, Simon, Judas, um, and, and they all pray, they all join together constantly in prayer, along with the women 
and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now, we know that this particular moment, of course, was um, a ten, roughly a 10-day span where they all gathered together and, and the, because we know that Jesus was among them for 40 days. It says that in verse 3. And we know that the resurrection was at Passover time, so we know that Jesus was 40 days with them. And we know that Pentecost is 50 days from Passover. So if Jesus left at the 40-day mark and the Holy Spirit came upon the early church on the 50-day mark, then this is 10 days. There's a 10-day span here where they are constantly in prayer, okay? And they had in their minds that... You know, they were given instructions by Jesus that the Holy Spirit was going to come upon them and give them power. He said, telling him, don't do anything. Don't go away. Just wait because you'll mess everything up if you go away. So just wait here until the Holy Spirit comes upon you because these guys were not really great at following instructions, if you remember. So just wait here. And of course, they were thinking, of course, the power of the Holy Spirit's going to come upon them and Jesus is going to come back because the angels had told them, why are you gazing up in the sky? This, this Jesus who went up, he's coming back down. He's going to come for you. So, so they had two things in their mind. Wait for the power of the Holy Spirit and Jesus' return. And so they're waiting in prayer. And, and the, so we find out, of course, that there's a 10-day span, as I said, because Pentecost was the Feast of Weeks. It was a celebration in the Jewish calendar. And, and you, you know, I've been trying to tell you for weeks... You, surely you've heard me. I've been trying to tell you for weeks that, that God is very deliberate in his pictures, his physical pictures to teach us spiritual lessons. This is why I've been telling you about details like marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. Don't mess with it. Leadership and all, all the details and all the pictures that God has are on purpose. The physical pictures are on purpose to teach us spiritual details. So it shouldn't surprise or shock us that God decides that he will have the Holy Spirit come upon this little huddled group of prayer warriors on the Feast of Weeks. And on that very day, guess what happens? Because you know what the Feast of Weeks was all about? First fruits. The celebration of first fruits. What happens on that very day? They receive the promise of the Holy Spirit a guarantee of what's to come. 3,000 people come to know Jesus Christ as first fruits of the great harvest that Jesus has said, I'm going to send you into the world. You go there. Be, you, you know, be bold. Be determined. There's a great harvest of people coming uh, on, bef you know, before I return. And so you have this great event take place. And so they've all joined together constantly in prayer, praying, waiting, the framing moments of the church happened in a prayer meeting. The framing moments of the church. Luke makes much of prayer. It's a 28, Acts is a 28, Luke is the author of Acts. Acts is a 28 chapter uh, book. In 20 chapters alone, he talks about prayer 31 times. So it's clearly an emphasis of our worship. Resolute, obstinate, persistent prayer, responding to the word of God with obedience. They were called to wait. And prayer is regularly the waiting room for all of us. We are waiting on God, waiting on God to act, waiting on, on God to do what he says he'll do. And, and, the, and the process is usually wait, 
receive and then act. Not act, receive, and wait. It's wait. We don't want to wait. I hate waiting. I can't stand waiting. I don't know if you're with me or not, but if I go to a restaurant, there's a lineup. It's like, I can't stand it. I, I get in the car, Lynn, we're going to some other restaurant. I will drive around all day in the time that it, I could have stayed there in the line and been in the restaurant. I'll drive around all day to find a restaurant that has no waiting for it. And it's bad now. It's really bad now because there's way too much waiting now. But uh, so I eat at home. But, but learning, here, here's a critical t- text here. Learning obedience happens when we can't see why we have to obey but we obey anyway. That's how obedience is really learned. We can't see why we have to obey, but we obey anyway. They had never had any experience like the Spirit of God coming upon them. They had no idea the benefit that was about to be theirs theirs if they would just wait on the Lord as they were told. And the blessing of the Holy Spirit fell on them, empowered them, and made them a bold and resolute church. And it says here that they glorified God by the prayers. What are the prayers? Well, the likely structure that they had, and with this I'll wrap it up, was that, and you probably know the the, um, acronym, ACTS, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. That's the prayers, the prayers of adoration. The prayers of confession, the prayers of thanksgiving, the prayers of supplication. And they they prayed these prayers in adoration, uh, uh, prayers of adoring God, the God of wisdom, the God of grace, the God of mercy, the God of love, the God who had brought salvation to them, the God who had brought Jesus Christ to pay for their sins, that God. They were praying prayers of adoration, prayers of confession. They were no doubt praying and asking the Lord to forgive them for their doubt and for their fear and for their cowardice and for their disloyalty. I mean, think of that group. Think who's in that group. Peter, the names are there. They all cut and run. When Jesus Christ, the moment that he asked them to pray, they all fell asleep. The moment that he was being dragged into into trouble, they all cut and run. Uh, Peter disowned him. The rest of the disciples cut, it says they scattered. They got out of Dodge. They didn't stay in Jerusalem. They left the city. And here they are in this moment of incredible grace of God who is instating them, reinstating them in mission and ministry, promising them the Holy Spirit. And here they are. Surely they were praying to the Lord, Lord, here we were afraid, here we were doubting you, and all along you had a mission for us, you, you had plans for us, you had an international ministry for us. They, most of these people, if any of them, had ever, never been outside of Israel, and they were going to go to the ends of the earth. This was un- incredible, and I'm, I'm sure that they were very broken before the Lord uh, for their human power outage and realized how much they needed God. And how, fear, how the fear consumed them and they didn't need to be afraid. There was nothing going to happen to them. This was in the plan of God, the sovereign plan of God. Beloved, don't be afraid. God has plans for you. And those plans don't include ever being afraid. They don't ever include being afraid. That's not something that God has invited us to be. And then prayers of thanksgiving that Jesus had defeated death. He appears to them and the pending power of the Holy Spirit. And then supplication to the Lord, Lord, please help. 
Please help me wait. Please help us wait. Please help us be patient and do what you ask us to do. And then please help us to welcome the Holy Spirit and the mission that you give to us. And please help us to be a witness to the world as you've called us to. Help us to be bold witnesses standing up for Christ and never again being afraid, never again doubting, never again being disloyal to you, never again cutting and running, never again. Help us to do that, oh God. So why should we pray if God is sovereign? I mean, God has this all planned out. The Holy Spirit's coming. Why pray? God works his sovereignty through the means he has given to us. I can't explain that to you. I don't know how to explain it to you. There's no possible way I can explain it to you. I know it's true. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Jesus prayed. The sovereignty of God includes... God's total control of our universe universe, includes his means by which his sovereignty unfolds. I can't explain it. All I know is we're called to be part of his sovereign plan by praying. And if you don't pray, God's made no promise to you to have any answers to that. Prayer is intricately connected to the sovereign will of God. Well, there's one other category, and like I said, we're going to leave that for a couple of weeks. Glorifying God by the ordinances. I want to take those apart for you and unpackage baptism and Lord's table in a more uh, um, uh, detailed way. But these four major elements made up the primitive corporate worship gathering and are the gathering corporate process of Calvary Baptist Church. Praise, proclamation, prayer, and ordinances. It's the primary setup of the church. So listen, beloved, you know, what the church does is what Christ's followers are also expected to do. So as we define this, it helps us understand how's your own personal worship? How is your corporate worship? Are you a truth seeker? Are you a praise giver? Are you a prayer warrior? Are you baptized? Do you celebrate the Lord's table with great vigor and priority in your lives? This is an opportunity for all of us, a time for for shaping our own identity to make sure it conforms with the scriptures because God has given us these details. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you for gathering God's people here. We thank you for those who've joined with us online. And Lord, um, you call upon all of us in our own personal lives to mimic the corporate worship lives of the church, a church that's a true worshiping church. So Father, I pray that we would hunger for the word of God and that we'd be people who praise you with all of our hearts. There would be people who wait on you in prayer. There would be people who have identified ourselves with you in baptism and who renew our vows at the table of the Lord, promising to follow you with all of our hearts through the strength of the Holy Spirit. Lord, may that shape our lives, truly shape who we are, I pray, as we look uh, at our own lives and measure them against the scriptures. So we thank you, Father, for this in Jesus' name. Amen.